The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that portion of scripture we have read at the beginning, namely in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the second chapter, in the 32nd verse, the 32nd verse in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Now I take that particular text, but uh, I do not propose to confine myself to it. I want to consider with you rather the sermon that the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, the day when the Holy Ghost descended upon the early infant Christian church. Now, I call your attention to this sermon because it is most vital and important that we should do so. Here is the first sermon that was ever really preached under the auspices of the Christian church as we know her. Until this point, there had been these followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and these special people known as disciples or apostles, but it was on this day of Pentecost that the church as such came really into being, as we know her. And here are these men filled with the Holy Spirit of God, speaking and preaching in the name of and for and on behalf of the Christian church. Very well, I say that this is a most important and a most vital sermon. Why? Well, because for this reason, apart from any other that it does give us, therefore, an account of what the message of the Christian church really is. It tells us what Christianity is about. Here is the very first statement, the first declaration made by the church which has just been constituted and brought into being. And I need scarcely say that one of my main motives and reasons for calling your attention to this is the terrible confusion at the present time as to what Christianity really is and as to what the message of the Christian church really is. We are living in an age, my friends, when everything is characterized by confusion. There is confusion in every realm. Confusion in the political realm, confusion in the international realm, confusion in the world and realm of industry. Confusion in art, confusion everywhere. The old canons have been dismissed and derided, and everything seems to be new. But alas, this confusion has come even into the realm of the Christian church and the Christian message. And books are being written and published, which seem to be casting doubt upon everything that has been said in the past, and offering us a new statement of what Christianity really is and what it means. And that is why I say there is so much confusion at the present time. I'm not blaming the common people for being confused. How can they be anything but confused with all these contradictory vices and statements? But what adds, perhaps, most of all to the confusion is this, that the old terms are still being used. There are many people today talking about resurrection, talking about Easter Day, 
but who don't mean what has always been meant by that. They tell us so. They tell us that these old terms need to be what they call demythologized. That in the past people have believed in these things as literal facts, but that we today can no longer possibly accept them as such. So they use the old terms, but evacuate of their meaning and put them put into them an entirely new and novel meaning. And the result of all this, I say, is unutterable and indescribable confusion. That is why I make bold to say that nothing is more important for us this evening, Easter Sunday evening, than to know what the message of the Church and the message of Christianity really is. And what can we do better than go back to the origin? What authority have we got apart from this? This is how it began. Here we are told in this picture, in, in, in this second chapter, of 120 people. That's all the church consisted of, 120 people who were together in an upper room. And the Holy Ghost comes upon them. And Peter preaches this sermon. And at the end, 3,000 are added to the company. Well, that's the very thing we want to know, isn't it? We are being told by these people that uh, their great concern is that the message of Christianity should get over to the people. They're troubled, they say, by the fact that the masses are outside the church and that the church is becoming a dwindling community. And everybody's concerned about this one question. How can we get the message of Christianity over to the people? What would they give if they could only add 3,000 unto the church as the result of one sermon in one night. Well, that's what happened. And that is why I'm arguing that nothing is more important or urgent for us than to discover exactly what was done, what was said, how it happened there back on the day of Pentecost. And it's all here quite clearly before us. That is what makes this sermon such an important one. Let me notice, therefore, and call your attention in the first place to certain things that we do not find here. The whole tendency today is to start with the man in the street, the modern man. The modern man of whom we are told that he's now of age, he's grown up. The modern secular man. That's where they start. They say it's no use the judge going on preaching these old truths. The people are not interested. They've got a new mentality. We are confronted by a new age. We are confronted now by people who are living in the atomic age. It's the age of the spacemen. It's the age when people are going upright into the heavens and sending their rockets there and doing orbits around the moon and so on. Here's the starting point, they say. We must start with this modern secular man who's got scientific knowledge and learning and training, and we must be concerned about having a message that will please him and that won't offend him and that will appeal to his knowledge and to his background and to his present position. That's the modern attitude, I think you'll agree. And therefore he is to be approached carefully and uh, he is to be allowed to speak and to state his point of view and to put forward his ideas about God and about religion. So we have discussions, dialogues, and uh, this is the modern idea of getting the gospel over to the world and winning men and women. I say I find nothing like that here. 
I don't find any concern on the part of the Apostle Peter to say things that are going to please his audience. I find rather boldness. I find him attacking them. I find him reprimanding them. I find him speaking with assurance, with confidence, and with an absolute certainty. His position is not that if he carefully prepares his case and his argument and remembering the outlook and the knowledge and the mentality of his audience, so puts it to them that he will win them and appeal to them and attract them, that all will be well. It's not that at all. Indeed, it's almost the exact opposite. The Apostle Peter relied for the efficacy of his message not upon his ability to conform to his audience, but upon this Holy Ghost that had entered into him. That's his power. That's the basis of his assurance. What else do we notice? Well, we notice at once the extraordinary content of this message. And here is again something which is very striking when you put it by the side of what is being done at the present time. Far as I'm reminding you, what is happening at the present time is that men are speculating. Speculating about God. You see, they say this modern man with his knowledge, his scientific knowledge, with all the space research and so on, the modern man cannot possibly believe in a God up there or a God out there. No, no, you must talk to him about a God who is depth. God who is the ground and the basis of all life, the God that is within. You don't talk about heights and up and out, but down, deep, depth. And indeed, uh, the modern men cannot possibly believe we are told in a personal God. Well, very well then, don't talk about a personal God. But talk about that which is the basis and the foundation of all things, the heart of the universe which is love. Now, that, I suggest to you, is a man speculating. Men trying to come to some idea about God, which will tally with his scientific discoveries and knowledge and with his type of thinking. But you see, there's nothing like that in the sermon of the Apostle Peter. To start with, Peter couldn't do that. He wasn't a philosopher. If you went to the Apostle Peter and said, don't talk of God up there or out there, but God is depth, Peter wouldn't know what you were talking about. You have to be a trained philosopher to understand such language. And the Apostle wasn't a trained philosopher, he was a fisherman. He couldn't use the clever language of the schools. He was just an ordinary man, a working man. But he's the preacher, the first preacher in the auspices of the Christian church. And, of course, he doesn't do that because he knows this full will. That all that had already been tried and had already failed completely. Another great early preacher was the Apostle Paul, who was a very great philosopher and a very great man, and who had studied in the schools and could meet the intellectuals on their own level and on their own ground. And he puts it like this. The world by wisdom knew not God. It tried to find him. There he is, you see, preaching in Athens to the Stoics and the Epicureans, 
and he knew that these men had been trying to search for the absolute, the ultimate, the being behind all being. They were philosophers. They were men who lived in the country of Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, and they spent their time in trying to find this unknown God. And they were trying to do so by speculating and by philosophy. But they failed completely. And they were no nearer at the end than they were at the beginning. So the apostle says, the world by wisdom knew not God. So obviously, they're not going to go on just doing that. All that has been tried with the greatest brains, and it's come to nothing. So they're not going to do that. Well, what is it then? Well, because the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's what we've got here. And of course, our Lord himself had said exactly the same thing. No man hath seen God at any time. And no man can see God. Why? Well, because God is the eternal. God is infinite. God is absolute. And no man, no mind of man, is big enough to comprehend the incomprehensible God by definition. That's why all the philosophers had failed. And yet we are being told that that is what we've got to do now. We've got to think of God as depth. God as the ground of all being. That's pure philosophy and speculation. The thing that had already been tried and had failed before Christ ever came into this world. No man hath seen God at any time. It was because men can never arrive at an idea of God that God sent his Son into the world. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten that is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. It's because men can never arrive at an adequate conception of God that the incarnation took place that God sent his Son into the world to give the revelation. Very well. That's what we find in the sermon of the Apostle Peter. So here, you see, in this first sermon, we don't find Peter speculating about the being and the nature of the being of God and saying, don't think of him in terms of height or out, depth, ground of all being. No, no, I say Peter couldn't possibly have done that. Well, what does he do? Well, now then, this is the thing I want to hold before you. This is the Christian message. This is the thing that the Christian church is supposed to preach and which by the grace of God I'm going to preach to you tonight because I've not composed a sermon, I'm going to preach Peter's sermon. What is it? Well, listen. Far from being uncertain speculation and wondering and doubting whether God is personal at all or not on just some great idea, no, no, what you've got here is proclamation. Proclamation of truth. It's a most remarkable sermon, this. Had you ever noticed that, I wonder? It's a curious sermon in which you get an intermingling of uh, facts and reports concerning facts and quotations from the Old Testament and exposition of them. Did you notice it? That is the sermon. He starts off by saying, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said to them, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. These are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which is spoken by the prophet John. Now, what's it mean? It means this. Here were these men, these disciples and the others with them in the upper room. 
And suddenly the Holy Ghost had come upon them. And they started speaking with other tongues. People were there in Jerusalem from every country of the then known world, and they spoke different languages, and their astonishment was due to this. They say, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, etc.? They said, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they said, what is this? They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Very well, that's Peter's starting point. Listen, he said, this fact that has amazed you, what is it? What's the explanation? And he then begins to answer his own question. So what he does, you see, he begins by stating a fact and he adds other facts to it and then he goes back to the Old Testament and shows the relevance of the Old Testament to the New. In other words, Peter, instead of speculating about the nature and the being of God, expounds the Old Testament and reports the facts with which you and I are familiar in the pages of the four Gospels and the early chapters of the book of the Acts. That's what he does and he blends them all together. And he does it, as I say, with an extraordinary boldness. He does it in a most convicting manner. What's he saying? Well, what he said to them was this. Let me try and summarize it in this manner. He said, I'm not here to speculate with you about the being of God. I've come here to tell you about what God has revealed concerning himself. In other words, you see, Peter's sermon is based on the Old Testament and the New. It is an ex extract of the essential message of the Old Testament, which he quotes from the Psalms and the Prophets, and it's all the same everywhere, the Old Testament and the New. That's a perfect blending of the two, and a showing of the relevance of the one to the other, and how each one supports and verifies the other. What is the message? Well, it's this. God... The everlasting, inscrutable, eternal God has revealed himself to man. He's done so through the patriarchs to whom he spoke and manifested himself. He did so in a very special manner to a man called Moses. He'd done it previously to Abram and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then very especially to this man called Moses. God not, not only did that, he created a nation for himself in order that he might speak to the world. And he chose certain men out of this nation and he gave them revelations of himself. They didn't arrive at a notion of God which was consistent with their age and generation and in conformity with their learning and their science or the absence of it. No, no. God spake. And they reported what God said. And God gave to them a revelation of himself. His being, his character, his might, his glory, how he created the world. His holiness, his justice, his righteousness and his love. God, who men can never arrive at, began to talk to men about himself. But he didn't stop at that. He not only gave a revelation of himself, he gave a revelation also concerning man. Here was this one nation, 
amongst all the other nations, and yet this nation had a unique understanding of life. None of the others had it. Their philosophers speculated and tried to understand God and men and life, and they couldn't. They were baffled. There was only one nation that had the explanation of men and his history. It was the Jew, to whom had been given these oracles of God, these messages from God. It wasn't that they were cleverer than others. They were not. The Jews don't compare for intellectual brilliance with the Greeks. Yet it was the Jews who had the message, not the Greeks. God gave it. Revelation, not speculation and philosophy. And God told, told them about men and his troubles and explained to them that it was all due to men's rebellion against God. To men falling into sin and becoming alienated from God. And further he revealed to them that God condemned men for this rebellion and this sin. That's the great message of the Old Testament. God making men perfect in his own image. Man rebelling and falling. God's wrath upon his sin. And God threatening judgment and perdition. It's there in the whole of the Old Testament. But thank God there was something else. And that is that God revealed that though man had thus fallen and had forfeited every claim upon God and his goodness and his love, that nevertheless he, God, had a purpose and a plan of redemption and of salvation. God revealed this. He revealed it in the Garden of Eden. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. And he went on revealing it. God formed this nation of the Jews. He said to Abraham, look here. When Abraham was 99 and his wife Sarah was over 90, God said to them, you're going to have a son, and in him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It seemed monstrous and ridiculously impossible. Modern science says it is impossible. It would involve a miracle. That's what God said. That is what God did. The seed of the woman he'd promised in the Garden of Eden, he repeats to Abram, is going to come out of the lines of Abraham. And to Abram and Sarah there was born a son called Isaac. And on and on and on the line goes. The Old Testament is just this. It is a, a constant repetition of this great announcement. That God is going to send a mighty deliverer. Who is going to rescue and redeem fallen mankind from the condemnation and the wrath of God and the power of the devil and evil and sin. God's going to do it. That's what he promises right through the Old Testament. And he takes steps to bring it to pass. Therefore you get all the history of the Old Testament, the history of the Jews. God is preparing for the coming of this great and mighty deliverer who is going to come out from amongst the Jews. He's going to be a son of Abram. He's going to be a son of David. And, in addition to those acts, you've got the prophecies. You've got the prophecies concerning him in the book of Psalms. Peter quotes the 16th Psalm. He quotes the 110th Psalm. He quotes the prophet Joel and other prophets. All these prophets 
are in reality just repeating this one message that God is going to send a mighty deliverer. The day is coming when someone will appear who will take upon himself the problem of fallen men and solve it and reconcile men to God and be the means of bringing great blessings upon him. That's the message of the Old Testament, says Peter. It's the great message of the Psalms and the Prophets of the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. And then he goes on to say this remarkable thing. He's come. He's arrived. The prophecies have been fulfilled. That's precisely his message. Look back, he says, there are your prophets teaching. Read your Psalms, they're prophetic. They're all speaking about someone who's going to come and do this great act of deliverance, a redeemer, a mediator. Listen, says Peter, he's arrived. He's actually come. God hath visited and has redeemed his people. The hope of Israel, the thing to which they looked forward, has actually materialized. It has already taken place. Now, that is the message of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, as it is the great message of the whole of the New Testament. God has done this thing that he'd been promising throughout the running centuries. The day of salvation has arrived. How did they know this? On what grounds can Peter speak with this great confidence and assurance and boldness? And the simple answer to that question is the resurrection. What did they preach in the early church? Speculation about God? Not up there, not out there. Death. No, no. Jesus and the resurrection. This Jesus, he talks about him. Did you notice it? Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves also know. There's an epitome of the whole of your gospel stories. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death. That's what he preached. Jesus in the resurrection. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all, he says, are witnesses. What did he preach? He preached the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as a fact in a physical sense. He didn't merely say that the memory of Jesus went lingering on. He didn't merely say that in some mystical, almost spiritualistic manner, they were making contact with the spirit of Jesus that was still going on in another realm. No, no. He says we are witnesses of the fact that he has literally risen from the grave in the body that the grave was empty when some of our own company went and visited it. We found the clothes, but not the body. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. 
Listen, they said, he's written, risen from the grave in the body. He appeared to us in a room. We met him at the seashore. He, Jesus himself, physically has risen. Well, now, here is the crucial question, isn't it? Can we expect anybody to believe that today? We are living in a scientific age. We are living in a secular age. We are living in an age when we've sent men up into space. They haven't seen any God there. They haven't seen any heaven there. We are living in an age which doesn't believe in miracles because science says miracles are impossible. Is it possible that men today will believe in a literal physical resurrection? Don't we need to demythologize this and to say, of course, he didn't rise in the body. They were primitive people and they believed that kind of semi-miraculous nonsense. We now... Is that your position, my friend? Well, if it is, this is all I've got to say to you. That you're in an utterly inconsistent position. Why do you believe in Jesus at all? You say, I believe in the teaching of Jesus. That's what's needed. I believe in the Sermon on the Mount and his ethical emphasis. That's what we say is needed today. But of course, I don't believe in these miracles. I don't believe in his virgin birth. I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe that he literally rose in the body. But why do you believe anything about him? Where have you got your knowledge from? Now, what do you know about the teaching of Jesus Christ? Where do you get your knowledge? Where does it come from? Do you know the answer to that question? It is from these apostles. You know nothing at all about Jesus Christ except what these apostles have told you. And these are the men who say that they were literal witnesses to his physical resurrection. If you don't believe him about the resurrection, why do you believe them about anything? In the end, you see, you either accept all that they've said or you accept none. You are in an utterly inconsistent, inconsistent position. These men tell us we are witnesses of his resurrection. And they were, of course. The fact of the matter was that these men didn't believe in him as the Son of God until he displayed himself to them after the resurrection. It was the resurrection that convinced these men as to who he was. They're honest enough to tell us that. They tell us in the Gospels for which they're responsible that when they saw him taken and crucified and died, they began to say we were all wrong. We thought he was the Messiah, but he can't be. He wouldn't die if he was Messiah. And they were absolutely hopeless. And one day Peter, in utter disconsolation, turned to the others and said, I'm going to fish. I can't stand it any longer. We thought, oh, how wrong we've been. Let's go and fish and do something. And then they suddenly saw him on the seashore in the morning. And they knew that it was he. And their faith was revived and their hope was rekindled. It was the resurrection that convinced Peter himself and all the rest that this is the Son of God. He says, we are witnesses. If not, I wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be standing before you. They are the preachers of the fact of the resurrection. Well, then, why did they preach it? Well, he tells us all about it. It is the resurrection that finally proves that he is this long-expected Messiah. You see, Peter does that in this way. He takes that 16th Psalm. Listen, he says. David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. 
He is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, says Peter, let me expound to you. Let me freely speak unto you about the patriarch David who wrote those words in the 16th Psalm. He is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, he says, it's obvious that David was not writing about himself. David did die, and David did get buried in a grave, and his soul did see corruption, and his body corrupted in a grave. His sepulcher is still there. What's it mean then? Oh, he says, therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that out of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. David wasn't writing about himself, said Peter. He was prophesying about this great deliverer, this great Messiah that was to come. And you know, said Peter, he's come. This Jesus hath God raised up. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. This is the only one who is not to see corruption. Not men, all men are corrupt and all men are sinful. That's why they die and see corruption. Even David, even Abraham, all the patriarchs, they've all seen corruption. There's only one, says the whole of the Old Testament, who's never going to see corruption. Though he dies, he'll never see corruption. Who is he? The Holy One of God. He has arrived, says Peter. We are witnesses of the fact that he was nailed to a tree on Calvary's hill. We heard him crying, it is finished. We heard him saying, into thy hands I commit my spirit. We saw him gasping, dying. We saw them taking down his body and putting it in a grave and rolling a stone. He died. But he didn't see corruption. He's risen. We've seen him. He's been amongst us with a glorified body without any element of putrefaction or of corruption belonging to it. Do you know, says Peter, this is the Holy One of God. This is God's Christ. This is God's Messiah. He has risen from the dead. The one whom the psalmist and the prophet said would rise from the dead because he is the Holy One of God has risen from the dead. He is Jesus of Nazareth and therefore Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And then he goes on to press and to apply his message. Men and brethren, he says, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David and so on. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, 
There's no speculation here about the being and the nature of God. There is a proclamation of fact. Something's happened. What is this? You say we're drunk? No, no. Do you know what this is, he said? This is because the Messiah of God has risen. He's entered into heaven and has been given the gift of the Spirit, the thing prophesied by Joel. And he sent it upon us, proving that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But listen, he said, this is what it means for you. This Jesus, whom you crucified but a few weeks ago, is God's Christ, is God's Messiah. God hath made that same Jesus whom he crucified, both Christ and Lord. What's it mean? My friends, it means this. God's great plan and purpose of salvation has been carried out in this person, Jesus of Nazareth. Man is guilty before God and is under the condemnation of God and the wrath of God is upon him. But God, I say, promised that he would send a deliverer. And he did send the deliverer, and the deliverer is none other than his own only begotten Son. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Holy One of God. He's God come in the flesh, and he came into the world because he is God's Christ which means God's Messiah, God's Savior, God's Deliverer. Did you notice how Peter puts it in the 23rd verse? Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What that means is this, you see. You didn't realize it, said Peter, but when you took him, and when you handed him over to the wicked hands of the Romans, And when they crucified him on the tree and drove the nails into his hand and thrust that spear into his side, they were but carrying out the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. He is God's way of reconciling men unto himself. He is God's Christ. As John the Baptist put it at the very beginning, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Throughout the whole of the Old Testament, God had been speaking to the nation and had said this, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. He says, I'm going to offer a sacrifice myself. You now in the meantime, offer your sacrifices. They'll point to my sacrifice. So he got them to kill lambs and to take their blood and offer them. But when Jesus Christ came, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This is God's Christ. This is God's way of forgiving sin. God makes him the Lamb. He puts our sins upon him and smites him. It's the only way of salvation. That's what I have to tell you, says Peter. The Jesus whom you crucified in your ignorance is the Holy One of God. He is God's Lamb. He is God's way of making forgiveness for men. But not only that, he said he's made him Lord also. He has made him both Lord and Christ. What's it mean? Well, it means this, you see. 
The Jesus of Nazareth whom these people had despised and dismissed as a blasphemer and but some fellow in ignorance has been raised from the dead and thus announced as the Son of God. And he has entered into the heavens and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. There he is as the Lord of the universe. God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. Listen, says Peter, this Jesus is the Lord of the universe. All power, he says, has been given unto him. He's the moral governor. He's the Lord of history. Everything is in his hands. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's Lord as well as Christ. Not only that, said Peter, judgment has been committed to him. He said it himself when he was in this world. He said that the Father hath given authority to the Son to execute judgment also. Because he is the Son of Man. Listen to me, said the Apostle Peter. David hath not ascended into heavens. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thine end of thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Jesus who rose from the grave on that first Easter morning, is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is seated at the right hand of God, waiting until his foes shall be made his footstool. This is Christianity, my friend. Not your speculation as to the being and the nature of God. Not your new morality which tells you to read Lady Chattersley's lover and indulge in filth that this is the morality suitable to the 20th century man. No, no, that he's the Lord of the universe and that he'll come again. And that he will come to judge the whole world in righteousness. He will not come to announce that everybody is going to be saved, that there is a universal salvation because God is love. No, no, he's got enemies until his foes, his enemies, shall be made his footstool. He'll come to judge. As he first came as a babe and died and rose again and ascended, he'll come back. He's the Lord. And he'll come back to wind up the universe, to judge men in righteousness, and to divide the sheep and the goats, to send men either to heaven or to hell. The Son of God who has been in this world as Jesus of Nazareth will come back into this world again and will issue the final judgment and verdict upon all. Therefore, there is only one thing to do, said Peter. It is the thing that was prophesied by John. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. And the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Christ of God. He is God's way of salvation. He is God's way of forgiveness. It is because God put your sins on him and punished them there that he offers you forgiveness. There is no other way. He's the Christ of God. He's the Lord of God. There is only one way of deliverance and of salvation. It is to call upon the name of the Lord. It is to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God and that he came into this world in order that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You believe that. You cry out unto him. You give yourself to him. You get up and you follow him. Call on the name of the Lord. If you don't, you're amongst his foes and his enemies. And you will be made his footstool. And when he comes back in that judgment, you will be banished out of his glorious sight to an everlasting perdition of hell and of torment. That's what the Apostle Peter preached. Listen to me, he said, men and brethren, You crucified Jesus of Nazareth. You didn't know it, but you were crucifying the Christ and the Lord. God hath made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You've crucified the one who came to save you. You put to death the Son of God who came to deliver you. Do you realize what you've done? And they did. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were stung in their heart. And they said unto Peter and the rest of them, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. Realize what you've done and admit it and confess it unto God. Fall down and rend your hearts and not your garments. Tell him that you've done the blunder. Tell him that you realize what you've done. Ask him for mercy and compassion. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for remission of sins. And you'll be saved and will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Have you been pricked in the heart? Has this message stung you? Or are you still saying, I'm a 20th century man, a spaceman. I'm a modern secular man. I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in resurrection. I want to understand God. And I believe that God isn't up there or out there. I believe God is depth. He's the ground of all being. Is that it? Do you think that we with your puny mind can compass God and understand him? Are you still trusting to your brain power, your intellect, your science, your learning, your anything? Well, then I tell you that you're damned, you're lost. And that when the Christ and the Lord of God will return... He will send you to the perdition that you so richly deserve. Forget all your knowledge, my friend. Forget the 20th century. It's got nothing to do with it at all. 
Are you mad enough to believe that all the past 19 centuries have believed a lie and nonsense and folly? Have all the saints and the doctors of the church been lunatics? And has wisdom only come in this 20th century? Oh, the monstrous lie of the devil. Forget everything but this. That Jesus of Nazareth was the Holy One of God. That he proved it by rising from the dead on that first Easter morn. That he and he alone is God's Christ, God's way of salvation. That he is coming again into this world and you will have to see him and to face him. Every eye shall see him, yea, and they that pierced him. You will have to stand in judgment before him, and your philosophy will be useless, and height and depth will be irrelevant. The Christ of God, who's been in the world and who's risen from the dead, will confront you. And will simply ask you one question. Why didn't you call on my name when you were given the opportunity? Why didn't you believe the facts concerning me that were put before you in Westminster Chapel on Sunday evening, the 14th of April, 1963, when that feeble preacher told you that I am the Christ and the Lord of judgment and of the universe? Why didn't you believe it? Why didn't you call on my name? Because you were told, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is how Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. That is how the 3,000 were pricked in their hearts and believed and were added to the Christian church. Have you repented? Have you realized your ignorance, your sinfulness, your vileness, your hopelessness? Have you realized that you'll be lost in the judgment? And have you cried out saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? God grant that this message may have come to you as it came to these people in the day of Pentecost. And that if you've never done so until now, you will now cry out unto the Lord. He won't refuse you. He said himself in the days when he was here, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Call on the name of the Lord the risen Christ, and you shall be saved here and now. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. 
You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.